Great, thank you, Jeff. <clears throat> and good morning, everybody. Um, as one or two have intimated already, it's, it's been quite a poignant time lately. I noticed on Friday, I think I've spoken to the funeral director more this week than anybody else, which is not something I particularly want to have to do or enjoy doing. Well, she's a very pleasant funeral director, but um, it's, it, it is quite a tough time for, I know, quite a few people. Um, a month, about six weeks or a month ago, I was asked to speak in one of the other churches on part of Ephesians chapter four, and it's kind of driven me into Ephesians chapter four in a way that I haven't for, for many, well, many years, actually. Um, so last time I spoke, um, we, we looked at the different ministry gifts that are set out in Ephesians 4. And we also thought a bit about how those different gifts are designed to relate to one another uh, and how there are often tensions between them because the different priorities each person has as a result of their gift mix. Um, I also talked a bit about how Ephesians 4 is foundational to the type of church that we are and how our church culture has been established on it over a period of many years. And part of the problem with culture is that it's just there and we haven't been very explicit about it in recent years. So I'm trying to emphasise some of the underlying principles that define who we are as Community Church Tadley and as part of BCC's Basingstoke Community Churches and in turn Forge Sphere and the wider Salt and Light Network. Um, today I'm planning to talk about another aspect of Ephesians 4 that's also fundamental to who we are as a church uh, and to talk a bit about how we as a family of churches have long understood this passage. I'm also going to make a slight detour into what I have called some Three Musketeers theology. Uh, you'll get to find out what that's all about when we get there. Um, but uh, it's it's a passage that is quite foundational i think for us as a church in order to understand the some of these passages we also have to stand back and look at the structure of the whole book um and when you look at ephesians the whole letter you you see that uh, it divides into various sections watchman knee famously divided it into three sections in the middle of the 20th century he wrote a book called Sit, Walk, Stand, which talked about the first part about Jesus being seated in the heavenlies and us being seated with him. And then in chapter four and five, we have this section on walking, the practical section. Uh, the first three sections, the first three chapters are really about a theology of the church. Chapters four through to six are the practical or what's often called the paranetic section. Um, and they're about how we should walk. Chapter four talks about walking in unity in the first 16 verses. The latter half of verse four talks about walking in holiness. First part of chapter five talks about walking in love. Second part of uh, or the middle part of chapter five talks about walking in light. And the final part of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six talk about walking in wisdom. Um, so it, it does clearly divide into a number of sections. Um, so let's just read the passage first of all and I need to share my screen to do this which I should have got ready to do earlier um, we'll come back to the picture that you can see there shortly I need to move on from that picture to the passage so we're looking at Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16 and Paul says this 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. Uh, we saw last time how the various ministry gifts that Paul describes, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, are supposed to work together to build up the church. And that's why they exist, so that the church becomes all that it should be attaining to the full measure of Christ. Today I'm going to focus on a couple of other aspects of this passage, one before the section we looked at last time and one that comes after it. Ephesians is often referred to as the book of the church and as I said previously 40 years ago you'd rarely go more than a week or two without someone or without hearing someone preach from it. Of course, in those days, most of us went to church meetings twice on Sundays, so you've probably heard a lot more preaching as well. So I'm going to start by looking at what I've called some three musketeers theology. When I look at a passage, I normally think a great deal about its context in relation to what's going on around it. And that's very important for anyone who preaches. Biblical texts don't occur in isolation. And part of my process of studying a passage is also to look for words that crop up a lot. When we do it with an English translation for this passage, we get, just one second, I have to click several places here, we get this, uh, which doesn't actually tell us a great deal. That's because the same Greek word is translated by several different English words. But when we do it with the Greek text, something very different occurs. We get this. You'll see there are far fewer words in the Greek. Um, but there are two words that occur, sorry about that, far more than any others. Once we take out the words that always occur 
frequently anyway. The first is the word that is generally translated or variously translated in English as all, every, whole or completely. And the second is the word that is translated one. And the linked word that's translated, uh, the connected word that's translated unity or oneness. So I've highlighted these in the passage we just read here. Uh, and you'll see um, that all the places where, so the words for one, oneness and unity, which are all connected, are highlighted in blue. And the word for all is uh, highlighted in green. The reason I've called it Three Musketeers Theology, some of you will have clocked, some of you won't. But anyone who's read The Three Musketeers, which is, uh, I think, a really good novel, actually, um, is that their motto was all for one and one for all. So here we've got the words one and all occurring repeatedly. Um, I actually think that the word for the, I'm going to get rid of that so you can see me again. Um, I think that the, the use of these words is deliberate as the word one is used once or twice in places where it's actually quite unnecessary. The word for all or whole, the word pass, occurs 52 times in Ephesians, but 12 of them are in this short passage. And the word one, or the word that's translated one, and its cognates unity and oneness, occurs 11 times in this passage, out of a total of 17 times in Ephesians as a whole. So in both cases, that's a very high proportion. And Paul I know many say Paul didn't write it, but I personally am convinced he did. Uh, and I wrote a paper to argue it is trying to say something here through his emphatic use of these words. And when we do find words used far more than we'd expect, I think it's always worth us just dwelling on why. And I'm not going to dwell on it at length, but I think this passage is emphasizing two things. And those are oneness and unity the oneness and unity of the body of Christ. And that doesn't just mean um, Community Church Tadley, although it includes it. We share, this passage says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and, God and Father. And we're called to maintain the unity or the oneness of the spirit and attain to unity or oneness in the faith. And for each, strangely, it says each one part, literally in Greek, to do its work. So each part to do its work. So Paul here is emphasizing that call to oneness and to unity. Uh, and the other aspect that is emphasized here, and I think this aspect of oneness combined with the aspect of all and everything is is telling us something that is actually a recurring theme throughout Ephesians. This one is telling us something about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. He's saying God is father of all, over all, through all and in all. And Jesus ascended above all the heavens to fill all the universe, giving gifts so that we all reach unity or oneness in the faith. So one of the things I love about this book of Ephesians is that it paints this picture of Jesus over all, in all, 
through all and all things being brought together in him. Ephesians 1, I can remember whether it's verse 9 or 10, sums up what I think is the universe, uh, is the, I've lost my thoughts and it's what comes of ad-libbing, um, the eternal purpose of God, um, which is to bring all things together in Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will be brought together in Jesus. Um, and this passage at the beginning of chapter four somehow brings an emphasis to that. It concentrates here this aspect of all things being brought together under one head who is Christ and all of us being one in Christ. So there's a completeness and a unity being talked about here um, that I think is important and significant. And we, we can't read that passage without um, our attention being drawn to that oneness and that completeness. The second thing that I want to come to is um, when I first came across the Salt and Light family of churches in the mid 1980s, I was struck by one thing. Uh, that one thing was an emphasis on the word relational. There was very little emphasis, at least at that time anyway, on structure, on organisation, uh, but a heavy emphasis on relationship. And to this day, our family of churches are not joined by a statement of faith, by a written agreement or any kind of contract. We are still joined by relationship. And that understanding is based on a reading of this passage that I'd never noticed before somebody explained it to me one day back then. And that is that the ministry gifts are to be worked out in relationship and that it's the joints and the ligaments that hold a body together. The church can only ever grow up into full maturity so long as the joints and ligaments, the relationships that connect us are doing their bit, uh, which we see in verse 16. To put it another way, here's a picture, um, which will be familiar to many of you. It's a picture of the walls at Silchester. These walls have stood there for about 2000 years. And what has held these walls together in that time? It's actually the mortar. The stones in this wall aren't for the most part very impressive. They're all different shapes. They're not nicely shaped stones. But when they are bound together by the mortar that the Romans discovered, they become an incredibly impressive wall that's been resilient enough to endure for two millennia. Let's look a bit more closely at that wall. You can see, uh, apart from the weeds growing out of it. Um, now in the church, each of us is surrounded by other stones and we're connected to those stones, to each of those stones by relationship. The mortar of the church is relationship. It's not signing on the dotted line as a member. It's not gritting our teeth and getting on with it. 
it's not agreeing to a statement of faith, although I do believe, and I'm not playing it down, do believe that what we believe is fundamentally important. And it's not just about finding the best fit with our priorities in a church that meets at a convenient time. It's relationship. And we need to guard those relationships. Relationships are normally the first thing that come under attack. We don't have to agree on everything, but we are called to love one another. There are some issues over which we disagree profoundly. Just try talking about the end times, Israel, gender issues, predestination, our understanding of the priorities for the church or any number of other issues. But we are called to love one another and to maintain that connection because it's the joints and the ligaments that give the church flexibility and agility and which ultimately enable it to grow. I have profound disagreements with some of the church, some of the leaders within our wider church movement. But the reason I'm still able to walk with them is because I know that they love me. I know that they care for me. And they know that I've walked with them for about 35 or 40 years. We're actually connected by relationship. And the fact that we're connected by relationship um, means that we are able to come to a place of disagreement and to work through that disagreement rather than simply giving up as soon as tensions come. And if we're connected like that, this passage shows us that the whole body builds itself up. It's where people don't understand that relational connection that we run into difficulty. I had a con difficult conversation with someone um, quite a while ago now who'd fallen out with someone else in the church at one time who said they were prepared to have a working relationship with the other person. That is actually to completely misunderstand the relational nature of the body of Christ. We don't just have a working relationship with one another. So this passage, in addition to what we said last time about the ministry gifts, is setting out a number of other things that are fundamental to the sort of church, sorry I'll get rid of that picture, I didn't mean to leave it there all that time, fundamental to the sort of church that we are. The call to be one in Jesus, all of those things that it talks about one of. It's also talking about how the God we worship, who is over all, in all and through all, the God who fills everything in Jesus and who will ultimately bring everything under the rule of Jesus. You quite often see a quote nowadays from Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch prime minister at one time, but also a theologian, uh, I'm walking on dangerous ground here because I haven't got it in my notes. But Abraham Kuyper said something to the effect of there is not one square inch of the whole of creation over which Jesus doesn't scream, it is mine. Um, the Lord Jesus is over all, through all and in all and everything will be brought together under him. The God who fills everything in Jesus and who will ultimately bring everything under the rule of Jesus. And the body of Christ is relational, not organisational. 
Uh, and I say that as someone I used to be introduced in the workplace as the one who brings structure to our projects. Um, and I know for me at times in the church, it's been frustrating that we don't prioritize structure. Um, but the body of Christ is relational, not organizational. And it's our relationships with one another, our connection to one another that makes all the difference. And one of the, the things that has driven our family of churches over many years is this idea that it is the joints and ligaments that enable the body to hold together and to grow. Not the bones or the skin, they all play their part, but it's the joints and ligaments that hold the whole thing together. You and I, I prefer that picture of the walls at Silchester to a brick wall, because actually on those walls at Silchester, every stone has its own unique shape. Some are the bigger, some are smaller, but every stone in those walls is completely unique in its shape uh, and in the way that it's fitted into the wall. Uh, any stone of any shape can be fitted into that wall so long as the mortar um, is binding around it. Uh, and the, the idea that we are like bricks in God's wall, um, surrounded by others, and it's our relationships with those others around us that, that connects us and keeps it strong. That wall has survived, as I said, for a couple of thousand years. So relational body of Christ for us is crucially important. Um, it's, I'm astonished at how often I'm asked, what's the statement of faith? Um, and, and those things are important. I normally reply, by the way, that if you read the Evangelical Alliance statement of faith, that would also be our statement of faith. Um, saves us writing one as well. But um, for us, the importance of the body of Christ being relational is right up there. Um, and it's, it's what's connected us over many years. It's what's enabled several generational transfers within the Salt and Light family of churches in a way that some other groupings haven't managed. Uh, I'm not saying we've got it all right. There are a lot of things we haven't got right, and I still have some profound disagreements with some of the leaders of Salt and Light, but actually because they know that I love them, they're quite prepared to let me argue with them as well. Um, so let's be that church that is entirely under the Lordship of Jesus. Let's be a people who are one and who are working towards unity. People with one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. Um, all for one and one for all. So I called it Three Musketeers theology. Actually, I think the Three Musketeers had something right there, that they were all for one and one for all. Uh, so let's just be that people that Ephesians 4 here is talking about us being. Amen. Over to you, Jeff.